This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. In the film Gladiator, I think some of you might remember that there's this scene there that depicts the amazement that some of these uh, gladiators possessed when they were brought from North Africa and they were walked right in front of the great Roman Colosseum and by all the buildings in the Roman Forum and some of these gladiators were just overwhelmed and one of the gladiators said, I didn't know men could build such things as he just viewed it all in amazement. And I think that, uh, my opinion anyways, was that the film was really um, well done in the sense that they really presented realistically what it must have been like to see the Colosseum and the Roman form in all its glory, you know, at that time. And that was the effect. That was the effect that such structures and, and works of art were meant to have. They were meant to project Rome's glory, to project Rome's power, uh, a sense of permanence and invincibility. And next to that, you know, compared to this, these little tiny, small, beleaguered, oppressed little Christian churches that Peter is writing to, they could easily feel like that. They could feel overwhelmed and small, you know, compared to the glory and the power and the so-called invincibility projected by the glory of Rome. And that's exactly what Rome wanted. And that's a feeling that you can get even today. Uh, when I was just in Spain, you know, I mentioned that the vast majority of these little churches that, uh, that we know and visit, that are gospel churches, the vast majority of them are tiny, very small. Uh, they don't have, most of them, their own independent church facility or building. Most of them live in little, wor- worship in little storefronts or something like that. And they are also surrounded by these massive, large, historic uh, creations and buildings. And in the modern sections, you know, Madrid and so forth, they're also surrounded by these very tall, high-rise skyscrapers. And, you know, I can see how they feel at times. They can feel very insignificant compared to all that. You know, you could feel like that. You can feel like that if you're not careful. If you're, when you're listening in to the culture's dialogue, maybe the dialogue about politics and power and political parties or the economy or, or you think about these, the billions of dollars spent on things like these, our modern coliseums, you know, these arenas for sports and so forth, you know. It's easy if you're not careful to feel like, what is the church in comparison to that? I mean, look at us, it's so small, and the Judeo-Christian worldview is just like gone here in our culture. Well, if if you were to feel like that, and maybe you have at some point, this would be part of my advice. Do something that I was able to do some years ago. Go to Rome today. Go to the historic section of Rome today. And you know what you're gonna see? Ruins, ruins. And the forum is just crumbling, and they're doing all they can to keep the Colosseum standing, you know. When you walk through it and you see it in that light, you remember this, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, right? But my word shall last forever. 
And that's something that we need to grasp uh, today because, you know, political uh, theories and parties and wealth and all these things can seem almost invincible. And we think how we're gonna overcome it is so powerful, so much stands in the way, but Peter wanted them to understand that all that glory and the emperor Nero himself, who would soon pour down the persecution against them, all of that is like grass. The grass grows and then it has a, a bloom, a flower, and it looks pretty, but it doesn't last long. And it falls and it dies. But the new life, that spiritual life that they possessed, that you possess, will last forever and no one can take it away. And he underscores that when he returns to that, that favorite word of his, imperishable. Once again, imperishable. Earlier he said, you have, you have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven which is imperishable. He says, precious silver and stone. That's perishable and gold. And he says, but you have been born of a word. You have a life in you that was born of an imperishable word, you see. No one can take this life away. What, what human beings can create what human beings can build can seem magnificent, like I'm sure the Colosseum seemed in its day. But beloved, what God builds will last forever. The new creation in Christ Jesus, you, the church of God in Christ, will last forever. So the message of our verses today uh, is simply this, is that the word of God, that is the good news, is a seed that is planted in Christians that produces a new life that cannot be taken away. And this new life is evidenced in love for God's people and it is sustained. It's nourished through this constant nourishment of God's word. Now I like to follow um, this text and in its logical order, that is not so much in its textual order, in these three main points. The source of this new life, that imperishable seed, the product of this new life, brotherly love, and then lastly, uh, the nurture of this new life, which is that spiritual milk that Peter speaks of. So let's start with the source of the new life. Verse 23, Peter says, since you have been born again, and that's where it begins. This is, you have been born again, and notice once again it's passive, meaning you did, he doesn't say you birthed yourself again. He says you've been born again. That's where the life begins. The question then is, well, what's the source of the new birth? If the new birth is the source of the new life, what's the source of the new birth? Well, in chapter one, he says, ultimately, he said, You've been, God has caused you to be born again according to his great mercy. In other words, it's the heart of God. It's because of his great mercy. That's the reason you're born again, but God uses instruments, right? He has means. So what, what means did God and his great mercy use to, to, to cause us to be born again? Well, he says you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. You've been born again of a seed. All life, as it were, begins as a seed. A plant begins as a seed, and then it 
It grows, it nurtures, it expands. And he says, your spiritual life began when God, according to his great mercy, caused you to be born again with a seed. He implanted a seed in you and he defines that seed further as a, the living and abiding word of God. That's what he says. The imperishable, living and abiding word of God. You think of this for a moment. Uh, God is almighty, he's all powerful. God can do anything according to his own nature. But he, he tells us here, he has the power to create life just as the beginning when he says let there be light. But here we learn again that he has bound himself to his own word, to his word. He creates new life with his word, through his word. The word is that instrument or means that God uses to cause the new birth. John 6.63, the Lord Jesus said this. He said, the words, there you have it, words, (laughs) the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. They give life. Uh, Now, Peter doesn't point that out here, this, that I'm about to say, but Jesus does in that context, and that is that it's not just the naked word itself, but it is God's spirit actively working with the word. You know, in John 6, 63 that I just quoted, it actually begins like this. It is the spirit who gives life. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. And so, how, what is the source of this new life? It is the living and abiding imperishable seed of the word of God in the hands of the spirit of God who decides to empower it at that moment in your soul. And this word, this word is an imperishable word and therefore your life is imperishable. The spiritual life is permanent. And then he supports it from that great passage in Isaiah 40. All flesh is like grass. Be it humanity, be it other creatures, all flesh is like grass. And all its glory, not only the glory of humanity, but what human beings create, all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. In contrast, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Uh, He emphasizes there the transient nature of human life. and all its glory, all its power, there's people who can project themselves as being super important and having much power. And of course, on on some levels they do. But don't ever forget that, uh, that, that they fall out of the public scene. And the reason we don't hear about them anymore is because they're becoming decrepit and they're going to die, you see. And we have a new person who rises up, you see. All flesh, all its glory will pass away. Life is transient. Life is hard. Life has pain and suffering. And uh, it's our nearness to God that sustains us. And it's having this perspective again, which is what? You need to remember the larger story. See your life in the midst of the larger story. Uh, These things won't last forever. But life in Christ does, you know, The older you get, the more you feel your mortality, you know, and and I've shared that with you before, and this week it was just punctuated with for me when 
<clears throat> you know, I got a phone call from one friend to tell me that one of our other lifelong friends from junior high passed away uh, this past week. And it just takes you back. And you begin to understand that it's, it's a brief life. It's coming. <clears throat> so all physical life and all that's created by human beings, human life, the power, the possessions, all its glory and accomplishment, it's like a flower uh, of grass. It can be attractive, can't it? You're driven by a, a, a little valley or meadow that's just beautiful with springtime wildflowers. Isn't that gorgeous? You see all these colors. And remember, in, uh, uh, heading down the Highway 5 there, when you go, start going over the grapevine, certain, certain times of years, I don't know, it's been so dry now, and I haven't driven a long time, but you could always see those California poppies on one side of the hill, just filling it. It's, it is glorious. There's, there's, there's something beautiful about the flower of the grass, right? But all of it, all that beauty, whether it's the beauty of possessions, whether it's the beauty of, 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 of certain sort of creations, accomplishments you see all that glory will come to an end it will all wither it would all fall down right Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away what does he mean by that well we know there's a new heaven and new earth coming a new creation he says even these have this heaven and this earth heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away and there he places his words on par with the word of the Father. His words and the Old Testament scriptures, it is the word of God. And it will not pass away. So this, this living and abiding word of God is further defined. Should we want to know what specifically about this word are you talking about? Look at the end of verse 25. So wonderful that he says, uh, and this word... What word? The abiding word of God, the word of the Lord, of verse 25. And this word that I'm talking about is the good news that was preached to you. <laughs> there it is. This word that gave you life, that is imperishable. What, it's not just any old word sort of grabbed out of the Bible. It is the, word, the good news that was preached to you. That is that imperishable seed. This is what gives life. Um, God's word, the gospel, is the good news. And it must be heard. And to be heard, it must be spoken. To be spoken, it must be preached. Like he said there, it was preached to you. And then he uses the verb there that has his roots in that word, euangelizo, which is the good news or glad tidings, proclaiming glad tidings. Some of you might remember uh, some of this historic background that in the ancient battles, battles of Israel as well, uh, when the victory was sure, they would send a runner, a runner who would run back to the people, to the city, and he would announce, he, he would declare the victory, the good news, right? How, how, how blessed, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so it is that gospel, that good news. What is the good news? It is the good news that God has overcome sin and death. God has overcome sin and death in 
his son who came to be the propitiation for your sins. That is, he came to take the just punishment of a righteous God on your behalf. And that there is life and forgiveness and adoption in his name. That's the good news. And he said, when you heard that news and you believed it, that was a seed being planted in you. And yet that life is an imperishable life. Are you a Christian today? If you are, beloved, that's what took place. That good news was brought to you. And the implications of this are, are, are profound, really, and practical. What he's saying, and looking at it this way, is there is, there is no, new, no new birth without the word, no new life without the word, no salvation without the word, and not only without word, but without human transmitters. God has bound himself not only to his word, he's bound himself to human transmitters, right? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings, good news. God has chosen this to be the means to the end of saving you. Sometimes people ask me in, in, in reflecting on things, especially when either they're not believers or they're just young believers, and they say, why didn't God just, you know, just do it? <laughs> just pop, <laughs> you know, just save people. God is determined, and his glory is bound up in this somehow to, to, to bind himself to his word and to human transmitters. He works, beloved, that means you. He works through you and me <laughs> to bring good news to others. Paul says in the book of Romans in chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, <laughs> someone bringing that word? And so, beloved, evangelism is not optional. Because we believe in the sovereignty of God and we say, well, God has chosen people before the foundation of the world. Well, yes, he's also chosen to work through human means like you and me. Evangelism's not optional. Uh, preaching's not optional. Teaching's not optional. Explaining the Bible's not optional. Handing out Bib Bibles, uh, which is the word of God, somehow conveyed, written to others. And the, none of these things are optional. These are the things that God has bound himself to to bring about his glorious work of renewing people. Of, putting, of implanting that spiritual, eternal life. That's how I was converted. I've shared with you before. I had a friend who shared the gospel with me three, four times, and after I rejected him, he left his Bible with me, his first edition of the New American Standard. I still have it. It sits on my, in my office. I look back at it and remember what God did. I remember I read that of month on end, over and over, Gospel of John, and some, somehow in there by the Spirit, a seed was implanted one night around 2 a.m., and that seed was the imperishable seed of the word of God. And so P Peter would have us think about this. Uh, he would have us understand in its context here that everything the world promises you, everything the world displays to you, all the beauty and power, permanence it projects, everything that it sells you will all come to an empty end. And each of those flowers, wealth, beauty, power, possessions, each of those flowers will die. But the word of God, that word which was preached to you, is forever, imperishable. Think, it helps, I mean, it, it should somehow give you some deep encouragement as it did to me this week that 
that I, there's dynamite and I'm holding right here. <laughs> this is incredible power, right? Just unleash it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God, right? The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who, are, who, be, who believe it is the power of God. And so we have an imperishable life. What's the source of it? It is source of it is the imperishable seed of the abiding word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And now look at the product of this new life. Peter says, "Since you have been born again, or excuse me, above verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart you know once again Peter puts a commandment in the middle and he gives two supports last week it was to conduct yourself with fear and he gave one reason before and one reason after and here he says love one another he gives one reason after because you've been born again of an imperishable seed and he gives one reason before because you've purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love therefore love one another. So let's consider what he says there, this product of love and how it comes from the new life. He says, having purified your souls. Hmm. What's that mean? <laughs> well, it's in the perfect tense. It's a perfect participle, meaning somehow their souls were purified in the past and they still are in the eyes of God. Having purified your soul. What's he getting at? I think, the, I think what he's talking about here is not some sort of perfection or moral perfection, but he's speaking here of, of the Old Testament concept of ceremonial purity. You're able to serve God because you've been purified uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ. You're, you're now an instrument in God's hands. You're prepared to serve in the temple. They were, the priests were purified so they could serve in the temple, and you can serve in the new temple, which is the body of Christ. And, and what's he mean by we purified our souls? Well, he's talking about conversion. Because he says, by obedience, or by your obedience to the truth. In other words, that's, the, that's what brought about this ceremonial purity. By your obedience to the truth. What the truth normally uh, refers to the gospel. In this context in particular, we say, okay, but what do you mean obey the gospel? I thought the gospel you just said was an announcement of God's victory, and now you're saying I gotta obey something, you know. What do you mean now I have to obey the gospel? Well, the gospel announces God's victory, announces his victory over sin and death and hell and and, and the eternal life in Christ, but it's also what? A call. A call to repent of your sin and believe in him. To obey the gospel is to receive the good news. It's to believe, it's to trust, it's to say, uh, it's to say I'm taking God at his word. You see, that's the obedience he's talking about. I don't think he's talking about uh, you know, ongoing obedience of your Christian life. It, it's, it's trusting, believing God. In chapter 417 of this same letter, Peter says it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God and if it begins with us what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God you see they're not in why are they not in they're going to face condemnation why they've not obeyed the gospel what's it to obey it's to believe it's to trust God's announcement and receive it 
Uh, uh, Paul himself speaks of that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. He says that Christ is going to come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, that's the Father, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They have rejected God's grace in the offer of the gospel. And so he says, this is what has happened to you. You are able to serve in the new temple. This came about because you are pure in Christ, and this happened when you obeyed the gospel. And what was the purpose of it? Unto brotherly love, he says. Unto sincere brotherly love. You know, the gospel has many, many fruits, many goals, many objectives, right? When we believe the gospel, there are many uh, blessings that come with it. Forgiveness, eternal life, justification, adoption. But the gospel also has a goal of transformation. Transformation uh, evidenced in, epitomized in, that highest Christian virtue, which is a reflection of God himself, love, you see, love. And so he says, you, uh, you have been purified through your obedience to the gospel for this sincere brotherly love. Um, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5, in contrast to the effects of false teaching, he says, these false teachers, they get, get you involved in all these arguments, and before you know it, the whole place is battling each other. And then he says, 1 Timothy 5 to Timothy, he says, Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. Notice, you have purified your souls for brotherly love, and Paul says that's the goal. When I preach, it's not, it's not just, I, I'm not just shooting for faith, but faith gone public. <laughs> faith gone public in what? A transformed life evidenced in that greatest of all virtues, which is love. The aim of our instruction is love, and so we know this to be true. We know the, the power of it, and we understand that it is the highest virtue Love is the highest virtue in that it is the very reflection, a mirror image of God's greatest gift to us, which was the sacrificial love of the gift of his most beloved son. We see this in many ways. For example, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul lists a whole list of virtues that we should put on. He says, and so as those chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And then he says, and beyond all these, beyond all these beautiful, beautiful virtues, he says, put on love. Put on love, which binds all things together in perfect harmony. It's like the glue, the strands that just wraps up kindness, humility, gentleness, compassion. It's all expressed in love, says Paul. In 1 Corinthians 13, this, the same apostle, the apostle Paul, 
describes love and its virtue and its characteristics and he says that it involves more than affections. Love is affection, absolutely. Affection for God, affection for others. It comes from the heart. But he, he describes love as active, he, as, as a verb. He says uh, that love, it, it, love is patient, so it does patient things. Love is kind, so it does kind things to others. Uh, love bears all things and uh, love thinks the best about other people. You see, love is active and sacrificial and then he ends talking about those three great virtues he says faith hope and love all these all three of these abide meaning the flower falls everything else is going to be ruined but you know faith hope and love they abide then he says but the greatest of these the greatest of these is what brothers love right he says it straight out the greatest of these is love Love is at the head of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, says Paul. It's the product of, what his, of the Spirit he's placed in us. And Jesus himself said that the whole law, the whole law hangs on these two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And say with me, love your neighbor as yourself, right? He says the whole law could just hang on those two things. If you fulfill those two things, you fulfill the law of God. So love is the goal. It is the fruit, the product of having this new life in you. It should be there. It has to be there. And, and he gives various qualities to it. Peter calls it brotherly love, which means a love for fellow believers of all types, of all backgrounds, <laughs> all shapes and sizes, different different uh, interests, different preferences. This is not always easy to do, is it? Right? It's not all, always easy to do. I told people in the first hour, I guess I could emphasize it in this hour as well. I could say, you all look like lovable people to me. <laughs> do I look lovable to you? <laughs> well, I can tell you right now, I am not always lovable. <laughs> and you, admit it, you're not always lovable either. And so it's not always easy to extend brotherly love. We offend each other. We, we hurt each other. We let each other down. But he's given us his spirit to enable us to do so. He says this love has another quality. It needs to be sincere love. That means it's love uncontaminated with self-interest. No hypocrisy here, you know. And that's also an easy temptation, isn't it? To love to be noticed to have loved. <laughs> to love to get something back, right? To love to indebt people to you. To love so that when you come to this problem again next time, you could say, yeah, but I loved you. <laughs> uh, there's all kinds of, of webs in our, in our hearts still. And P what Peter says is, this love that I'm talking about needs to be genuine. It's not a love for your own benefit. Paul thinks the same way. He knows the temptation. So Paul says to the church in Rome, in Romans 12, 9, he says, let love be genuine. <laughs> let it be the real thing. And so he transitions since he's talked about love as being the product, he then goes to the command. He says, therefore, love one another. And he adds another quality, earnestly. Earnestly. That means 
eagerly or f- fervently love one another. The root of that, the root the meaning of that verb was to stretch a muscle to its furthest capacity. You know, stretch that muscle to the point where you think it's just about to snap or you're going to get a cramp. <laughs> he says, that's how I want you to love. Love one another with that kind of exertion, you see. In other words, the love that, that, that Christ aims to produce in us and among us is not a token gesture. It's not a token gesture. At times it's going to involve stretching ourselves to the point of our own exhaustion, right? To the point of our own hurt in order to hurt, in order to heal or help or come to the aid of another brother or sister. Uh, And that's what he's calling uh, upon us to do. And should we need an example, if you say, what does that look like? We need a model for that. We need to look at no further than the love of the Father for us and the love of the Son. You know where this all comes from, don't you? The Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Literally, love is out from God. In other words, God's the source of love. Let us love one another, for love is out from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love, and love is out from him, you see. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world, or only begotten in some other translations. In other words, he sent the son, which was his most glorious and most cherished possession, his most cherished one, his only son, his most loved one, so that we might live, have this new life through him. And so in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I know that's a big Bible term, propitiation, but it simply means to have satisfied the justice uh, that we deserve of a righteous God. Beloved, if God so loved us, that is that he gave what was most precious to him at this unimaginable price, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, John goes on. He's talking about the Father. No one's seen the Father. He's, he, he's, he's unseen to us. If we love one another, God, that unseen Father, abides in us. And his love is perfected, made full, complete in us. And I think he's reflecting very much so on the words of Jesus. And, in the Gospel of John recorded there, right? Chapter 13, 34, new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now we're in the example of the Son. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have this kind of love, this quality of love one with another. No one has seen God, the Father, at any time But when you and I love each other with this divine love that's selfless, sacrificial, stretched to the limit, they know that we belong to the Father. (laughs) That love is making the Father visible, as it were. 
And should we need more an example, we look back to Christ. No one, no, no one has ever waded through more pain and suffering in order to love us than the Lord Jesus. No one has endured more, given more, stretched the muscle of love more to love you and me, the unlovable, than the Lord Jesus. And it's, it's a healthy reflection once in a while, again, to remember that what Jesus endured for you and me, for us to be right with God, he didn't endure just relying on the power of his own divinity, his deity. Remember, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, he set aside that, that, that free use of his deity. Sometimes I think we're just, we don't say it out loud, but we think about his sufferings. It's almost like somewhere in the back of our head, there's some reasoning. Yeah, well, of course he, he went through that because he's God. But he wouldn't have been uh, an adequate substitute for us if he did not suffer as we would suffer as a man. And he endured Gethsemane. He endured the whippings. He endured the crucifixion, the, the piercing of his sight, and he endured whatever it is that he experienced on that cross when the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin, as it were, that we might become the righteousness of, of God. He endured all that as a human being by faith, trusting the Spirit of God to be with him. So let's not forget that, that we need a model. The cross remains the greatest model for you and me for our love. Now it's hard to love like that, I said. It's not always easy, and some things get in the way of loving like that, even in the most intimate relationships and marriages and homes and families and the church. And so he says something next that's very important. Look down at what Peter goes on to say. He says, so, chapter 2, verse 1, there's a connection here. So, therefore, right, in light of this, if you're going to love, if you're going to love like that, you're going to need to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And you're going to need to do that. You're going to need to set aside your old habits and learn to change. He says, to love like this, you need to put away all malice. That is what? That is wickedness. Uh, you, need to, you need to put away all deceit. No more lying. No more hiding behind masks. You need to put away all hypocrisy. This needs to be genuineness in your, in your dealings with people. And envy. No more jealousy of other people's success. You need to put that all away. And all slander. That's talking down about other people, particularly behind their back. You need to put all that away. This is the stuff that gums up our capacity to love. You know, It gums up the gears of of mutual love and there's a there's need for that not only in the church but in your own walks and in man some of your families your marriages the gears are gummed up gummed up by malice or degrees of deceit some hypocrisy some envy some slander that needs to be put away and you have the grace of the spirit to enable you to do that that you may love, that you may love in this kind of a way. So don't forget the motivation here. You know, I said it's not very easy to love like this. It is a challenge, and, you know, it's not like flipping a switch. It's not like flipping a switch. 
Our capacity to love like this and our motivation is rooted in our new identity. Our new identity in Christ. Who we are. Peter says in verse 14, as obedient children. But you're children. You're children. You're God's children. As obedient children. Be holy. As obedient children. You belong to God. He's your father now. Uh, love one another. You've been born again. Which meant what? That means you, you have a new life in you. The spirit dwells in you. And so the motive here isn't just regulation. You know, some people just think they go there in terms of motivating people to grow. And it's, you know, it's all sort of sort of law uh, limitations. Like, it's wrong to not love. Well, yeah, I know that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's wrong to not love. It's the, but gospel motivation is what we have here. You are his child. You've been born anew. You have a hope awaiting you. The Spirit dwells in you. That's the motivation. This is gospel motivation. And the obedience as a Christian is rooted in our, in our trust, our faith, believing in our new identity. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, you know, uh, that we should walk in a manner worthy of this calling. We be imitators of God. And we've said before, boy, that's a high calling, huh? Be imitators of God and walk in love. And he says, as beloved children, you see, you're loved. <laughs> Don't forget what that means if you're a Christian. You have that capacity to love like this. But this kind of love, this kind of life, this life, this life is not static. You don't arrive there once. Uh, the Christian life begins as a seed, and like a seed, like all life, it grows. You need to mature. So we look now at the nurture of the new life. Look down at verse two. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. If you're going to love like this, you need to be nurturing, you need to be growing. And it's interesting, you know, he says that you grow up into salvation. Someone who doesn't understand this, you might be thinking, well, I so is my salvation not done? How much do I need to grow up? What do you mean? I thought my salvation was finished. Remember, salvation is a huge concept. And it includes things that are already done. You've been justified already. You've been sanctified, set apart. You, you've been forgiven. You've been adopted. You belong to the family. All that's true. But salvation has other components that are being worked out now and in the future. We will be saved from God's wrath in the future. We will be transformed and resurrected. That's part of our salvation. And right now, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's talking about working out the, the impact, the transformation that is possible through the Holy Spirit. And that's what Peter's saying here, saying, I know to love like this is hard to get rid of malice and, and, and all these things that gum it up is hard, but here's what you need to do. You need to grow, grow into your salvation, and you grow through what he calls the pure spiritual milk. Pure spiritual milk. He says, like infants, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it, by it, you may grow up into, into salvation. You know, um, 
most of you know that milk and infancy uh, are used negatively by Paul and the author of Hebrews, right? He says you shouldn't be an infant any longer and so forth, you should grow. But Peter's not using it in that same way, so you need to set that aside. Peter's using this in an entirely different way. It's all positive. Peter says this is really a quality that every Christian should have forever. From the moment you're born again, you should always have this longing for pure spiritual milk that you might grow. In that way, we ought to all stay like infants, he says, having that longing. And that longing is a very strong word. It means to crave something, to have an ardent desire for something, something you want badly. Have you ever seen any, anyone want something more ardently than a little infant on his mother's lap who's shaking and kicking and crying because he or she wants milk and wants it now? <laughs> right, yeah, well, you, I hope you've seen that. And when you see that, Peter's saying that's the kind of longing we should have for that pure spiritual milk that we might grow. And not say, not poo-poo it and say, I don't, it's, not, it's not necessary. No, it is necessary. So the question is, what is this pure spiritual milk? What an interesting phrase, a phrase right? Pure spiritual milk that you should desire. Uh, literally, it could be translated the unadulterated rational milk. You say, what? Well, the, word, the middle word is logikos, from where you get logic, ration, and the word logos, the word. And so the ESVs decided to go with spiritual, but the New American Standard and the King James both see this as referring to the mind's capacity to understand the word of God. And Peter's been talking over and over about the word, the living word, the abiding word, the word of the Lord. And so they, they translated the pure milk of the word. The pure milk of the word. And I think that's exactly what, what he's getting at, is we need the word to, to become Christians, and we need the word to grow as Christians. The word of God. In Acts 20, uh, verse 32, Luke records that Paul said, I, com- I commend you now to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. To build you up, to grow you. We grow by the word. And now some go a bit further and they say it's, it's Christ that he's talking about because look down at verse four. He goes on to say, as you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen impression, you yourselves like living stones are being built up, being built up. And so he's changed the metaphor. Yeah, he went from plant or life growing and milk and infancy to a, a, a temple or a house, but he's talking here about Christ we we build ourselves up by going to him but I don't think there's a conflict between the word and Christ why because to to grow from the word you have to grow by understanding Christ that's the point of the word when you come to the word you should be coming to know Christ coming to understand him he's the great subject of the word Uh, and so I think there it's the same sort of thing here uh, we understand the, ber- the word best and we are nurtured the most by the word when we see what the word tells us about Christ and we understand because he is the object of our faith, right? We worship him. He is the word 
in flesh. So the Christian life's not static, beloved. This new life comes from an imperishable seed. It will never be taken away. This new life goes public in love, love that is strenuous, but that love is hard to exercise. And so this new life needs to be nourished continually. We need to come back to it and long for it and take it in. Ask yourselves, how can you improve your diet of the word? How can you take in more of the word? And how can you reflect more deeply upon Christ? He says this is a new appetite that everyone who is a Christian should have, will have. And he ends by saying, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now he doesn't doubt that most of them are Christians. He doesn't know them all, but he's saying, you know what I'm talking about when I say, go to that word long, that spiritual, that, that milk, that pure milk of the word. Long for it because if you're a Christian, you've already tasted it and you came to the conclusion that the Lord is good. I don't think you have a problem understanding that. Some of you ate pie Thanksgiving or something else you liked and you said, that is good. So what'd you do? You went back for more. (laughs) And that's what Peter's saying. If indeed you've tasted the gospel and you found in the gospel, the Lord is good, then you should be longing for more of that (laughs) and going back to him over and over. Beloved, listen, all the ancient Colosseums, the pyramids of Egypt, amphitheaters, temples, just like today's skyscrapers and multi-billion dollar stadiums, all of these things, all of them are designed to project power, permanence, value, glory, but the truth is this, see it in the, see it in the whole story, it is all like a flower, it's going to die, it's going to fall, but what you possess in Christ is imperishable. Don't be mesmerized. Don't be mesmerized by the glory of man and his creations. Be mesmerized by this. You have an imperishable life and God has chosen to use you to bring that life to others. Amazing, isn't that? Let's pray.